Turn with me in your Bibles once more to the Italian prophet Malachi. It's the last time I had to say it. It's the last time we'll be able to look at this book. Now, I'll probably get the tithing sermon on a few more times in the life of the church, but going through the whole book may not happen again. Uh, there's 66 books. This is only the fifth book that I've been through. And so this is somewhat bittersweet as I came to studying this passage this week, just really falling in love with this prophet in a new way. I have had occasion to teach it before, but preaching through this book has really been uh, personally very, very gratifying, convicting, and rewarding at the same time. I hope it has been that way for you as you have considered our Old Testament counterparts, uh, the church in that time, and uh, really what they were dealing with as a covenant community and how the faithful came up uh, from among them and answered and responded to the Lord. But still, we are uh, faced with the reality that this is a people that who has, in general anyways, grown disconnected with the love of God for them, the unconditional love of God for them, what I've called the sure love of God, a sovereign, unconditional, redemptive, elective love. Not a love like we use uh, today so flippantly, but a love that is divine. And he has placed it on them in the first verses. I have loved you, says the Lord. And uh, the people doubt this love, and we see the doubt in their lives as their, their, their worship was lame, their relationships were lame, their leadership was lame. Everything about them spoke of a people who are not united to God. So the prophet comes and over years ministers and faithful among those people come forward. Those who feared the Lord, we learned last week, they responded, they repented. And so now we come to the conclusion of Malachi. And there's a tall order for the prophet here, whether he knew it or not. Uh, there's a bridge that's being made between the old and the new here, as it is the, the last prophetic voice for some 400 odd years before uh, John the Baptist comes forward or comes, comes forth. And so there's some profound words here that give direction or a link or a bridge to the New Testament that, are, that is important for us to gather here today as we close our study of the book of Malachi. Hear God's word, Malachi chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses. The statutes and the rules that I command him at Horeb, that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its direction. We thank you for how you've revealed yourself to us by your word. Pray, Lord, that you would make us a church that responds to your word, that we would be among those who fear the Lord and talked among one another and a book of remembrance be written. Lord, I pray that we would go forth from here, a changed people, a people that is, we've just been renewed in our love for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. About 30 years ago, there was a foundation that funded a group of lawyers uh, who were willing to go and do state audits of the various laws and statutes that were on the books that had long been on the books but were no longer relevant. They were obsolete. 
And so for 30 years, this foundation funded these lawyers going through state to state, finding these laws. And some of these laws, will, they're going to make you laugh when you hear what they are. But they were actual laws. And this audit served to get rid of those that were obsolete or relevant. Uh, let me just read a few of them for you. In Lexington, in Lexington, Kentucky, of all places, there was an ordinance forbidding anyone to carry an ice cream cone in his pocket. It's important to have such a, a law. In Waterloo, Nebraska, barbers were forbidden to eat onions between 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., which you can appreciate, I suppose. In the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, a place that still has colossal problems in figuring out what good law is, it was against the law to eat peanuts in church or to use tomatoes in making clam chowder. Clam chowder, very important there. In Kansas, there was actually an old law that stated that you cannot eat snakes on Sunday or rattlesnakes, rattlesnake meat in public. In Los Angeles, at one time, you could not bathe two babies in the same tub at the same time. Our kids would never get a bath if we couldn't put them all in the tub at the same time. In Zion, Illinois, it was illegal for anyone to give lighted cigars to dogs, cats, and other domesticated animals kept as pets. In Carmel, New York, a man couldn't go outside while wearing a jacket and pants that do not match. I'll leave that one there. Uh, in Gary, Indiana, persons were prohibited from attending a movie house or other theaters uh, there, and from riding public streetcars within four hours of eating garlic. That's a shame right there. Can't go anywhere without after eating garlic. In Hartford, Connecticut, there was a time when you were not allowed to cross a street while walking on your hands. In Baltimore, it was once illegal to take a lion to the movies. Talk about strict. <laughs> Incredible. In West Virginia, there was a, a, a law at one time where no member of the clergy was allowed to tell jokes or humorous stories from the pulpit during a church service. Maybe this is why. <laughs> I could, uh, there's so many others. Uh, Lynn, Massachusetts, there was an ordinance that stated babies may not be given coffee to drink. In Winona Lake, Indiana, it was illegal to eat ice cream at a counter on Sunday. It was against the law for, Nebraska, for a Nebraska tavern owners to sell beer unless they had a kettle of soup brewing at the same time. According to an old Detroit law, banana peels were not allowed to be thrown into the streets for fear of injury to horses. I'm even told at this day, to this day, that there is, and those of you from Colorado may be able to confirm this, in the middle of the Royal Gorge Bridge, the tallest suspension bridge in the world, rising over 1,000 feet, there's actually a sign saying, no fishing from this bridge. You know what, at one time, and there are more than I'm reading here, at one time these laws had a particular purpose. Uh, they were relevant to some particular issue that must have happened. Who knows what it is? But for us today, we laugh. It's funny. But they were actual laws. Uh, they've become irrelevant or they're obsolete. Uh, maybe understandable at one time. But now they have completely ceased to have any application uh, from the day that their representatives uh, who pushed them from when they ratified them. They seem wild to us because of our cultural context, but they weren't wild when they were ratified. But brothers and sisters, we have uh, grown to look at law, especially in our day, as something that changes, that ebbs and flows, that somehow mimics what culture is doing. Maybe that's true of man-made laws. But there's one law that has never grown obsolete. There's one law that spans back into eternity because it reflects the nature of the one who expresses these laws. It will stretch into eternity because it, again, expresses, it reflects the nature of the one who embodies these laws. Obviously, you know, I'm talking what we typify as the Ten Commandments. You know, 3,500 years ago is when they were codified, that is, given 
Moses had them and wrote them on the stone, and the stone really shows us the eternal weight of them. They're written in stone. There's this picture. But you know and I know that it was a sin for Cain to kill Abel long before it was ever codified in writing. It's the very reflection of God that is is expressed in these ten commandments that we call the law. And I have come to believe that as a pastor, the greatest thing I can do for you, the people of God, is twofold. It's continually express and preach the unconditional grace of God for his people. It's the gospel of grace. That's the first thing I can do that will feed you, that will make me faithful before God. The gospel of grace, not the man-centered gospel that's so prevalent, but it's God's sovereign, unconditional, redemptive, elective love for you. On a regular basis, that's the thing I can do to be most faithful, I believe. But it would be not enough if that's all I did. The second aspect, and this is what is found in this book. Remember, it starts with, I have loved you, unconditional grace. But it also says in verse 4, chapter 4, remember my law. That is the next most, you can't separate them. And it's not law and grace. It's grace and the law is being part of our living, the life of grace. The law now for us, and don't misunderstand me, I'm not telling anyone here the law gets you saved. I just told you how you're saved. It's by the unconditional grace of God. What I am telling you is that the safe place for you is in God's reflection, which is his law. The place that brings God glory is your obedience to the law. The the place that gives the most honor to our Father is obedience to the law. The best way you could say thank you to God for your salvation is your trying to reflect him by following his law. The law is not oppressive in that way. The law is safe. It frees us. It liberates us. It brings glory to God, and it draws people to him. I submit to you that this last chapter of Malachi does this, that starts with, I have loved you. I have loved you, says the Lord. I have done so unconditionally. I've done so redemptively, providing my son. I've chosen you to do this. There's nothing you've done, and it's by my own sovereign power that I do it. Now, whatever else happens, and a lot of stuff's going to happen, we're going to look at it in a moment. A lot of stuff's going to happen to the nation of Israel in, this, in, in their life, in their history. But whatever, no matter what else happens, remember the law. Remember the law. There's a bridge here between the Old and New Testament in Malachi 4. God's people will be identified by their obedience and kept safe from God's judgment. We will see that. But let's look together at the text. Starting at verse 2 of chapter 3. You don't have to turn there, but remember what it says. But who can endure the day of his coming? We're introduced to the idea of the day of the Lord in Malachi 3 verse 2. Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. But then we move to chapter 4 where we are today. And he gives a, a fuller picture of what the day of the Lord will be. And we are to, first of all, remember the day of the Lord. I put, remember the day, dot, 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 because I originally wrote, remember the day is coming. And I thought that would confuse the particular meaning of this text. It's true, God visits us with his righteousness. And there's special visitations where he judges and he distinguishes between his children and those who are not his children. And there will be a final day without question that he does this. He visits the earth, if you will. His son comes back and judges. No question. But I don't think that's the particular visitation that Malachi is talking about here. So I hesitated in how to write this, but for us, we do need to remember the day of the Lord. Remember his judgment. Remember that he judges. He's still judge. But let's look particularly at what it means for what it has meant, I should say, to our Old Testament counterparts and what it then means for us today. In verse 1, we are introduced again to the same phrase. Verse 1 of chapter 4, For behold, the day is coming. 
burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. Then down to verse 3. So twice now, well, three times in the book of Malachi so far, the day is referred to. Verse 3. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So in just part of chapter 3 and in chapter 4, we have the day of his coming, the day, the day when I act, the great and awesome day of the Lord. And this phrase, the day of the Lord, is not unusual to the Old Testament prophets. In fact, it's mentioned by Amos, Joel, Obadiah, Zephaniah, and Zechariah, the day of the Lord. So it begs the question, it's a good question, what is the day of the Lord? And first of all, there are two senses in which the prophets speak of it, and they bleed together at times. You have to understand, it is not as clear-cut as much popular literature would like to say today uh, what the day of the Lord is. But what we do know is there's two aspects. There's the day of the Lord that the prophets meant uh, to be when God specially visits. He, he intervenes in redemptive history. He comes in in a special way and exerts his presence, and his presence is righteous. So it's going to call to light those who are opposing him, right? It's also going to reward those who are faithful to him. And it happens throughout the New Testament record. Think of the different times that God vindicates Israel in the face of the godless or those who are opposing God. Uh, multiple uh, multiple uh, occasions where this happens. And just to Pastor Nathan's uh, working through Joshua, you'll see several of his visitations in that book where he supernaturally, beyond just his, his regular, if you will, providential care, intervenes. And you could call it the day of the Lord or his visitation comes upon and makes a separation. That's the general way in which the day of the Lord uh, manifests itself in the prophetic literature. But there's another aspect to the day of the Lord uh, that is referred to as well. Uh, more focused, uh, we focus on it more, I think, especially today. And that is uh, the, the flavor of the day of the Lord that describes the Lord in his, the climax of his sovereign interaction with earth. And we think of the ultimate day of the Lord as the time he comes again. Uh, the time that he comes again to separate, if you will, the sheep and the goats and the new heaven and the new earth are, if you will, ushered in. So there's the day of the Lord in a general sense and then the ultimate sense. And then I would submit to you that there's this, this marriage of those two things that sometimes make the particulars difficult to see, but it's clear that God is working in judgment and he has specific times that are hallmarks of his interaction with his people, with the earth, and I think Malachi is speaking of one such time that is to come. It's always in view the ultimate judgment. Always. But there's something else at work here that bridges those two things, those general visitations with the ultimate visitation that the Lord will someday visit upon the earth. Malachi is forecasting something that will happen to his audience. Now, what, I want you to think about this for a moment. If you're in Malachi's day, the church in Malachi's day, and you're hearing Malachi speak like this, this is heavy, heavy stuff. Uh, th just, the language is incredible. Who can endure this day? The day is coming, burning like an oven. You will tread down the wicked. So he's picturing a day. And who is he talking to? He's talking to the covenant community, which is Israel in the Old Testament. That is, this nation he's called out. Now, I hope we understand by now that the nation is, has a special place at this time in God's plan in that he uses the nation and its, and its, its politics even and everything about it, its social structure, its leadership, in order to house the elect, the church. Israel does not equal the church in the sense that they are not the people that it doesn't mean just because you're a, nation, a member of the nation of Israel that you're one of God's people. It's those who feared the Lord. Those were the ones who were God's people. So Israel's the 
the mode or the method that he uses to bring forth his people. And so Israel is who he's addressing. And Israel, as a general rule, as a nation, was turning their back on God. This is constantly what's happening in the prophetic literature. But the beauty of it, the silver lining, if you will, is every time he approaches Israel with the sins that they're committing as a nation, as a people, those who are faithful, who fear the Lord, come forward. They respond. They repent. It happens even in this book. Those who heard the Lord repented. Monumental, because Malachi is talking about a judgment that's going to come on these people. There's going to be an ending. They're going to be wiped out to the point where there will be no root that will come forth and start over again. It's going to be that total, utter destruction is what, he's going to, is what he's forecasting. So the question we have to ask is, when will this happen? Did it happen? Is it happening? I would submit to you that what Malachi speaks of specifically has, in fact, happened. Now, how to understand how fulfillment of prophecy like this works, let me try to explain it in terms of an Old Testament passage I think you all know and will understand. Now, you understand that there's a school of interpretation that talks about everything prophetic being in this ultra-futuristic sense, that Malachi here is writing about something that has not yet happened. In fact, mostly what you hear today in popular writing and preaching will always use these texts to talk about a day that's still coming. In, in, in trying to understand this position, it's simply saying that, hey, these things haven't happened yet. Uh, you can't sit, tell me that there's something that's burning like an oven. We would have known that. And treading down the wicked? When did people tread down the wicked? And, and so on and so forth. This literally did not happen. Some will say, among the brethren, we're not talking about out of, out, outside the camp, within the brethren, we'll say, this has not happened yet. Yet, I want you to think of a passage you all probably know from Christmas time, Isaiah 40. Think of this passage now. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, Isaiah 40 says. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up. That'd be a big event, would you not say, every valley lifted up, literally. And every mountain and hill be made low. That would be huge, we'd remember that. And let the rough ground become a plain, and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. We all know what that passage refers to. And if we don't know, Luke 3, 1 through 6 tells us it's the first coming of Christ. It's his birth. It's the prophecy of his birth and John the Baptist foretelling of it. In fact, literally, Luke quotes this text when he says, uh, talking about John the Baptist baptizing in the Jordan, and he came into all the district around Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. And Luke explicitly says that this prophecy in Isaiah 40 has been fulfilled in John the Baptist's ministry in the first coming of Christ. But did you see the valleys being lifted up? Did you see the mountains and hills being made low? Do you remember that in the history books anywhere? The rough ground will become plain, a plain. The rugged terrain will become a broad valley. Clearly it is not intended for us to think of it in absolute literal terms. Like the, the valley would literally be flattened. or the It's the fact that all that was established, all that was thought to be true, was shaken up when Jesus came. And all that would be laid, all the traditionalism that had come into the Jewish nation would be laid level when the light of the world will come and shed light and show who really, truly were devoted to him. Obviously, the words of Isaiah were fulfilled in the first century, and my argument today, or uh, what I believe is, is the most accurate understanding of this, is a similar thing happens in Malachi. As he looks forward to the day where there will be a judgment upon Israel, and when that judgment comes to Israel, it's going to affect anyone who's there associated. It's not just that Israel, anyone in that, in fact, Literally, anyone who lived in 70 A.D. when this happened was affected by it, whether you're Jewish or not. The visitation of the Lord comes 
as he uses the Roman nation to come and utterly destroy Jerusalem, unlike anything we would think of. We see wars today, even the war that's going on in Iraq. Uh, we, that, is a, that is surely a siege. But you don't see everything being wiped off of its foundations. That's what happened in Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Let's look at the verses together and see how this parallels with that event in history. Malachi 4, starting at verse 1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. That's an important analogy for us. An oven, how does an oven burn? An oven builds up its heat, and then it holds an incredible amount of heat for a long period of time. That's unlike a wildfire. A wildfire looks wild, but actually the heat isn't nearly as high as it is in an oven. An oven's able to maintain pressure, heat, for a long time. And that's what the oven of the coming of the Lord is like. It's, there's a buildup, and then there's a sustained pressure that happens. When all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble, and stubble's that which is thrown into the oven and burned and destroyed. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. So it's going to be total. There won't be a root or a branch. When a farmer goes through and burns his fields to make it more fertile for green growth to come up, that kind of burning does not affect the roots. The roots stay there. In fact, that's the whole genius behind it is that it's going to grow up again. This kind of burning is different. It's going to be taken out. There's, no, there's going to be no rising up again of this particular body. This is done away with. This system is done away with. My use for it is over. Verse 2. But for you who fear my name, so even if you're part of this big body or you're not, those who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. So while this is going on, uh, at the same time, those who respond, those who fear my name, it's going to be different for you. You're going to be spared from this ultimate judgment. You're, going to, you're actually going to be renewed. You're going to spring about like calves coming out of their stall after a long winter. This is the beauty of the, the genius of Charles Wesley who writes, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, rising with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them a second birth. He understands that this passage in Malachi is referring to the first coming of Christ. The son of righteousness will come with healing in his wings. What is it, healing in his wings? What does that mean? Now, you probably have third, heard of, uh, uh, of descriptions where a, a bird will put its wings around this young. That's not really what's being said here. Literally, wings refers to corners or or the edges of one's garment. In antiquity, someone would have a robe on, and it would be a symbol of security as they'd wrap their robe around their little ones or someone they were protecting. In fact, in the Bible itself, there are several examples. In Deuteronomy 22, you shall make yourself tassels on the four corners of the garments which, covered, which cover yourself. Same word, the priests with the tassels on the corners of their robes. Well, one that you may be more familiar with, in 1 Samuel 24, 4, the men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as you see good. So David arose stealthily and cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Remember Saul was asleep? He could have killed him. But instead to show that he had been there and had shown mercy, what does he do? He cuts off the corner of his garment. It's very symbolic. It's the, it's the, it's the thing that shows that you have authority and you're able to protect people with. And David chose to cut that off of Saul's robe so he would know that David had been there and chose not to kill him. In Ruth, we have this beautiful statement where Boaz says, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a kinsman redeemer. This is literally talking about the, his robe. Spread his robe. This is what it will be like as Jesus comes and tells the 
the folks in Malachi's day, when Jesus comes, those who fear him, he will put his garment around you. And I can't help wonder, I can't help wonder if this is somehow in the back of the mind of the writer Matthew when he says, referring to something that happened in Jesus' day, Behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him, that is Jesus, and touched the fringe of his garment and was healed. The Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. This is Jesus' coming to earth that Malachi is speaking of in the light it would shed. Verse 3, you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. So the fact that they're ashes tells us they've already gone through God's purging. So what does this mean? Well, when God judges the Jewish nation, from the ash heap will come his coveted people once more, those who fear the Lord. We call it the church. And you will tread upon those ashes and move on. You will go forth. Verse 4, remember the law, my servant Moses, he says. And this tells us it transcends testaments. Remember the law of my, Mo, of Mo, my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Whatever else happens in all this judgment, those who fear my name, remember my law. Do not forget it, because it will guide you. It will keep you safe. It will protect you. It will bring glory to me before the nations. Verse 5, behold, I will send you. When will this happen? Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord, the Lord comes. I will send a prophet. And there's a clear reference throughout the New Testament gospel writers, and of course in Isaiah 40, who forecasts that John the Baptist, Elijah, would come. Luke 1, 15 through 17. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So the spirit of Elijah is upon John the Baptist, who he himself didn't even, when they asked him, are you John the Baptist? No, I'm not him. But the spirit of Elijah was upon him. He's the fulfillment of this prophecy in Malachi and in Isaiah. And you may say, well, he didn't, it didn't work. He didn't turn the hearts. Yes, he did. There were many. In fact, the church was born among those people who were Jewish folks who had turned the doctrine of repentance that John preached. But as a whole, once more, the nation, their hearts were not turned inward. And as a result, in verse 6, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. If not, he's saying, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And as a whole, as a general, the nation did not. And he came and struck the land with a decree of utter destruction officially in 70 AD when the complete, the complete raising of Jerusalem had finished. One of the greatest commentators in my estimation, technical commentators, is the German C.F. Kyle. He says this, This judgment burst upon the Jewish nation not long after the ascension of Christ. He's commenting on Malachi. Israel rejected its savior and was smitten with the ban at that destruction of Jerusalem in the Roman War. And both people and land lie under this ban to present day. And just as the judgment commenced at that time, so far as Israel was concerned, so does it also begin in relation to all peoples and kingdoms of the earth with the first preaching of Christ among them. It will continue throughout all the centuries during which the kingdom spreads upon the earth until it shall be ultimately completed in the universal judgment at the visible second coming of the Lord at the last day. He's saying that Jesus came, when John the Baptist came, the great day of the Lord was beginning, and it, was, it met its climax when the Roman troops came through and wiped out Jerusalem and the temple in particular. I was just in Rome about a couple months ago, and there are three triumphal entry arches that are still standing in ancient Rome. You can see them. And they all tell the story of a different war. And the one that relates this story of, of the Jewish war, the Roman war against the Jews, is still standing. And it tells you the horrific story of what happened in that war. 
it's, it, you know, these, these things that you see today are horrible, don't get me wrong, but they're nothing compared to what happened in this, these days of ancient Rome and how they dealt with Israel. They had grown tired of Israel's rebellion. You remember the time of Christ, how much was going on and how much Pilate was losing control. And finally, Rome had enough, and they literally gave permission for the troops to mow down, lay waste to Jerusalem. Why? Because this, why does God visit in such a way? Because he distinguishes at different hallmark times who are his people and who are not. And then he will sometimes use this kind of discipline in order to reveal that. Thankfully, it's not a common occurrence. It doesn't all the, do it all the time. But none of us should think that judgment is not part of God's way of disciplining, discipling, and revealing. How did he do it in Malachi's day? What actually happened? I mentioned this war in 70 AD when Rome came and wiped out Jerusalem under the Emperor Titus. Listen to one commentator. They, they writes, The destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, just a few years after the Epistle of Peter, was the greatest single event of a thousand years and religiously significant beyond anything else that ever occurred in human history. Spurgeon, a more popular writer that we're aware of, says this, The destruction of Jerusalem was more terrible than anything that the world has ever witnessed, either before or since. Even Titus the emperor seemed to see in his cruel work the hand of an avenging God. Those who write of that... Uh, Flavius Josephus, if you ever want to read some graphic depiction of war, he writes what happened in the Jewish siege. Depressing, I know, when you think about what happened to the Jews at that time. But there's something hidden here that I want us to see. Verse 2, but for you who fear my name, he speaks of this day. This is still the same day. The son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out like calves from the stall. I submit to you that those who fear the Lord are the calves from the stall that have been gestating... And at just the right time, when he ends one mode of revelation or one mode of revealing his plan, he begins another. And it's the church. And what happens is, is uh, for a farmer in those days, they didn't have 100 head of cattle. They had one. And they would have that cattle bred, and then they would have it in the stall during the summer months. And it would stay in there while the baby's gestating, while the, while the offspring is gestating. Then the baby would be born in February and March, just before it's starting to get warm out. And after a couple months of life, still pent up in the stall, that calf is let loose, and it just literally leaps, spreading, using its muscles, because it never could before. It was pent up. It was still growing. It wasn't time. But as soon as it's time, it busts out of the gates, and it's leaping all over. And you could go around Jerusalem, it said, and see all these calves bouncing and springing out, because they've been pent up for all this time. That, I submit to you, is the church gestating in Israel. And then it's time to come... As time was for, come forth and the nation was ended in 70 A.D., the church busts forth, and even in the midst of persecution, exponentially, the first sermon, thousands came to know Christ. Those who feared the Lord listened and turned in Peter's sermon. And it has gone on ever since. No matter what it looks like to you, don't ever be fooled that God's kingdom is not going forward. Don't ever be fooled that looking at only exteriors. We should know better than to just look at exteriors. He moves forth with his church. It's his plan to do so. Malachi looks forward to that day. Do they know all the specifics? No. But there's a strength that came from knowing that there is really justice and that God really will uphold those who are devoted to him. A simple application is that none of us should be lulled into thinking that God does not judge today. And literally, and I don't know, I believe the church is at fault for this, but we live in a country that there was a day in which there was a, there, there was a bent towards God. I'm not saying it was a Christian nation, but there was a bent towards God. And we're coming closer to a time where we're just asking for judgment. We're just saying, please, I don't believe that you'll judge. And I promise you, based on the authority of the word of God, he will. 
And maybe we won't see it, but our grandkids will. And if that doesn't mean anything to us, then there's got to be ice going through your veins. So what happens now matters, and the church has the power to make a difference. Do you know that the first George Bush was voted in, and I don't, that's not say anything about his politics or his faith or anything, based on 83% of the evangelicals, those who call themselves evangelicals, voting on him. They lost the Catholic vote, lost the minority vote, and lost, of course, the, Democratic, uh, the, the faithful Democratic vote. But because 83% of evangelicals voted for him, he got in. All I'm saying is that the math is there. If evangelicals actually vote according to the word, we wouldn't be having the debates we're having today. But I submit to you, most of us, it's not that we don't care. We just don't think we can make a difference, so we do nothing. And that's disobedient. Because we are to influence the laws of the land with our voice. It counts. It matters. All I say to you is that we should not think that we are above judgment. We are all safe from eternal judgment as the children of God. But it doesn't mean that our generations are safe from the judgment that will have to occur to a place that continues to thumb its nose at God. If we care about that, we need to take God's judgment seriously and act. Those who fear the Lord hear and respond. I want to conclude by answering this question. How do we then live? We see the judgment of God as it reveals itself in the first century and how it's something we know God will not cease to do. He will judge. First of all, verse 2 tells us we must fear the Lord. That's the first step. And fear the Lord is just another way of saying trusting in his Redeemer. Fearing the Lord acknowledges that there's nothing of ourselves that can save ourselves, so we trust in his Redeemer. And that's, that's synonymous with fearing the Lord. Uh, you cannot fear God unless you trust Christ. You won't even be able to fear God without eyes that are seen through the media. So that's the first step. That's how we live, trusting in Christ. But secondly, as I had mentioned, verse 4, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb. I'm not just telling you this, says God, to make your life miserable or to hold you back or to give you some way in which you earn love for me. No, that's all settled in Christ. But I want to give you what is my righteous reflection, and I write it upon your heart so that you would live it and you would bring glory to me. If you turn in the back of your hymnal just for a moment, page 859. Often people ask me, well, what's the point of that confession? You know, the confession is so long and so... Listen, there's a practical reason uh, behind the writing of this confession, and I want to show you how is you can have a practical way to start implementing uh, the law in your family's life, just the commandments of God, how this will help you, how this will draw you closer to him. Now, there are a lot of sections. I really encourage you to read them. But look particularly at the long paragraph, section 6, and hear what the writers here are saying. They're, they're capturing this idea that grace and law are not opposed to one another at all. We're saved by grace, and now we're saved unto good works. How are good works described? By the law. Look at verse uh, section 6. Although true believers be not under the law, that means we're not under its penalty as a covenant of works to be thereby justified. In other words, we're not saved by the law. Although we're not saved by the law or condemned, yet it is of great use to them, that's to you, as well as to others, in that as a rule of life informing them of the will of God. You'll learn the will of God and their duty. It directs and binds them to walk accordingly, discovering also the sinful pollutions of their nature, hearts, and lives. So as examining themselves, thereby they may come to a further conviction of humiliation for and hatred against sin, together with a clear sight of their need for Christ. The law will reveal how awful we are, but how beautiful Jesus is, and his righteousness is ours, and we're saved. What a beautiful way to put this. Clearer in their sight the need they have for Christ and the perfection of his obedience. It is likewise of use to the regenerate, that is the believer, to restrain their corruptions, in that it forbids sin, and the threatenings of it serve to show what even their sins deserve and what afflictions in this life they may expect for them. 
although freed from the curse thereof, we're all freed from the curse, thereof, threatened in the law, the promises of it in like manner show them God's approbation of obedience and what blessings they may expect upon their performance of them. There are blessings that come from telling the truth. There are blessings that come from not committing adultery. There are blessings that come from not being jealous of what everyone else has. Just natural built-in blessings that are true of the glory of God. And they come to us as we follow these commandments. Although not do as them by the laws of the covenant of works, so as a man's doing good and refraining from evil, because the law encourageth one another and deterreth from the other. To no evidence of this of his being under the law and not under grace. In other words, this is no evidence. As you administer the, as the law is lived out in your life, it is no way saying that you're under law, not under grace. It's because you're under grace that you have a proper understanding of the law. In the final section, one of the most beautiful in the whole confession, neither are there are the aforementioned uses of the law contrary to the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it. The Spirit of Christ subduing and enabling the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully, which the will of God revealed in the law requireth to be done. How do you please your father? Remember the law, it says. When I worked at the seminary, I was on the grounds crew, and they would send me off on this old piece of junk truck that I was scared to get in. The second gear was going out. Third gear was, was close. It went into reverse like cha-chunk, and it would... You know, if anyone's behind it, they probably get hit. It was about a four feet, four foot leeway after you put it in reverse. And the grounds uh, supervisor sent me off to go pick up four skids of sod on this flatbed truck that was a piece of junk. Tires were all off. It, this was, it was a horrible experience. And he told me, now, Tony, or actually the guy who had done that before said, Tony, now, be careful when you go in the truck. And he listed at least six things I should look out for in the truck itself. They said, when you get there, it's really been raining, and there's huge ruts in the road. And if you get the back dually tires in one of those, you're in trouble because it's not four-wheel drive. And also, it's on the edge of a rock quarry, so it's about a 30-foot 30 30 drop on the right side. On the other side, there's this person's house that has these bushes, and they've already created a lot of trouble for the sod farmer as it is. He doesn't want you running over those either. And when you get in and you back up, be careful because it goes off the other way about 25 feet. I was so scared by the time he gave me all these instructions that I didn't want to go anymore. I said, you go. I'm not going to do this again. And then my boss said, Tony, no matter what else happens, don't think of all that. Just keep your hands on the steering wheel. Go straight and drive between the ruts. That's all you do. Drive. Now, by the way, you have to hold the steering wheel a little bit because it's off alignment. But hold it straight and just go in. Don't be so concerned. And I say to you, brothers and sisters, there's a lot of hype out there about judgment, about end. We need to see it in the word. But what do you need to do? Just remember the law. Starts with saying, I have loved you. And it says here, children, just remember the law. Remember the law. So ends the reading and study of the book of Malachi. Let's pray. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this book. We thank you for its relevance today. We see that you are still a God who judges. And you're still a God who saves. You're still one who uh, wraps his garment around us. And we praise you for this. Bring healing. Lord, we thank you for this. Lord, I pray for your children here today, and they are your children, Lord, by virtue of what Jesus has done for them. I pray that your children would fall in love again with your righteousness, and that we would see it typified in the law, that we'd see that the law is not by any means something that should make us uh, scared or depressed, but rather we should be overjoyed, O oh Lord, and give us that joy that we've been saved from its penalty, but now we can live unto you according to it. 
Lord, we want to say with the psalmist, how I love your law. Lord, I pray that you would use your church, your church's obedience, to change this world for our Savior. Pray this in his name. Amen. Let's turn in our hymnals to sing number 439. We'll sing the first, the second.